Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. In today's episode, we talk to long jumper and 100-meter relay ace Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana tells us how track has been a vehicle for other things in her life. Her struggles between gold medals a decade apart, her insightful blogs, ebooks, and performance nutrition presentation, as well as how she found her way out of an unhealthy relationship and back to a good place mentally and physically. Thanks for keeping track. Welcome to episode six of Keeping Track. Thanks for listening. And we're back here with Alicia and Roisin. Hey, ladies. Hi, Molly. Hey, Molly. So it's been quite a um, tumultuous week in the track world. What have you ladies, what do you, what's on your minds? Oh, man, a lot of stuff. For me, I mean, I think one of the things that is really on my mind is just really figuring out how to better support uh, women athletes across the board. That's just, I think kind of been like the long game hopefully you know we can solve some problems within the short term of it but I've really been thinking a lot about fueling performance and things like that and how we can better educate um, our younger athletes and um, to understand like you know how they can both you know understand nutrition but also steer away from things that might put them in the red zone in terms of you know not allowing their performance to last them as long as it should be able to. Yeah, I think we see too many um, really talented young athletes not navigate like transitioning into adulthood as far as physically and all the other stuff that comes with it. And so um, Red's relative energy deficiency syndrome, I guess is what it's called now, um, is part of that puzzle. And so Roisin, I know you went to this really interesting um, conference where some specialists were talking about it. Can you give us any info there? Yeah, I was lucky enough just, you know, just happened to be on the schedule anyways, uh, attend a a conference that um, we had some experts who work in this field a lot and and work with athletes who struggle with reds and eating disorders. Um, So I'd come out of there learning a lot. um, And one of the uh, we were going to post some of the resources um, that have surfaced since this Mary Kane story came out. And just really understanding that reds is a bigger issue um, and that affects a lot of athletes. And um, they showed a a study they had done like of a thousand athletes that have walked into their um, athletic uh, center. And out of the 1000 athletes, it was like 43 or 46 percent of athletes actually could be considered having reds and these are athletes that didn't have eating disorders or not weren't necessarily injured at the time um but that they were had markers of of an energy deficiency and um i think there are more education out there you know and more resources that are available for coaches they can really learn to um notice the signs notice things before they become an issue and i think um we definitely want to learn more about it. I want to learn more about it. And we want to have some of those experts on here um, to teach everybody else about it. Um, because there's healthy ways to be an athlete and there's healthy ways to navigate the sports. Um, and we want to really like understand how to do it. And um, 
yeah, that losing your period isn't isn't a requirement or having an eating disorder isn't a requirement. And actually, there is a healthier way to do it. So um, we will post I will post some of the, the graphics and different um, resources. Um, one of the uh, resources I found out about was a the female athlete center in Boston Children's Hospital. Um, there's an expert there, Dr. Ackerman. She's an endocrinologist and kind of a leader in the Reds. Um, another expert on this is Trent Stellingworth, a sports scientist from Canada. Um, so I'll definitely link everybody to some of the resources they've been posting and sharing um, that should be help people. Awesome. Yeah, I, I saw some of the slides you sent me from the conference. It was really interesting how many actually other um, parts of your physiology are affected by that syndrome more than people, uh, I think, normally link it to. So. Yeah, we'll put, we'll post those. We'll post those slides. Yeah, and just even yeah. just like an insight on that, like what Molly's referencing is that we, you know, everyone knows the marker of like amoria, of like the athlete triad of losing your period, but actually there's so much more. You know, a lot of more hormone issues, uh, metabolic issues. Reading some of them here, sorry, um, psychological issues, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, immunology. So there's a lot of other areas that are affected by reds, and I think the more we learn about that, the better. Cool. Knowledge is power. <laughs> totally. Um, this episode is with uh, long jumper Tiana Bartoletta. Um, guys, what did you think of? the episode and the conversation. I loved it. I, I loved reading Tiana's blogs and talking about some of those issues and um, great articles she wrote. I Tiana is such a fire. I'm so excited for everybody to hear this interview with her um, and just all that she went through. I mean, the fact that she has went a decade between earning, um, you know, world championship medals or like major championship medals, I should actually mention, um, and how she stayed there, the things that she went through with, with like, again, on this subject, physical, mental, emotional abuse, you know, and then her understanding, just like her own power. I love one of the things that she said, uh, physics doesn't give an F is one of my favorite <laughs> lines that she's ever said. And it's also kind of what we're talking about. You know, physics is still a, a very important factor in uh, performance. Um, so, yeah, I just think she was very insightful. insightful. She's very articulate and she just dropped so much knowledge on us. I felt like I was reading a book. <laughs> so um, I'm really excited for this this interview for everybody to hear. Yeah, I think she's very inspirational and really opens her eyes to what it's like to be a world champion and how life goes on after that. And how do you, you know, come back and, and recover from being a world champion? It actually can be more mm -hmm. of a weight, um, psychological or emotional weight and how she had to learn how to manage that and get back to high performance. And she, it's yeah. and it's a continual process for her. And, you know, she doesn't have all the answers, and but she knows that how she's showing up every day is important and she's really honoring that doing the work and um and that's become like her focus now which I really really loved her interview so I'm excited about that yeah and I think one of the things that's also yeah. great that she touched on was identity within sport and I think that's that's I mean I think we many of us from a professional level even not even a professional level across the board when we care about something so much we have our identity so wrapped up in one thing, but that also can be our downfall. It's almost like an Achilles heel. Yeah. Is it an Achilles heel? <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> yeah, that people can yeah. <laughs> people can over identify with their labels yeah. and titles and things like that. Yeah. And and the fact is, you know, there's gonna be ebbs and flows and all of it. So when it's just wrapped up into one thing, I mean, I think that is like the downfall for a lot of people when they can't find the balance between, you know, other things that also make them whole. And yeah. um I just think that just pay attention to that when she starts talking about identity for everyone, I think everyone doesn't have to be a professional athlete. doesn't have to be just, I think there's something that we can pick up from the little nuggets as she drops about how, you know, she reshaped her understanding of identity and herself. Yeah. And unfortunately she's gone through a loss. So like it hasn't always been a positive thing for her. And she actually gives us a great, um, insights and uh, resources around abuse and emotional abuse so we will be sharing those as well she's written a great blog since we spoke to her um, referencing Mary Kane and some of the things that she's seen in around that um, and I also think you know she has a great example of you know it was so hard for her for so many years and even though she had success from that it felt um, like empty or dis- dissatisfying because it was so stressful so how you know that it's not always about the medals and we've talked about that a couple of times and I'm sure we will again um, and how you know how she's showing up in her emotional human side how important that is too be, um, beyond a number or a medal yeah I think she sounds like she's in a really happy place and a really good space um, like mentally and emotionally and so I want to see that manifest in a great 2020 going forward so I'm really rooting for her Um, everyone keep your eyes on Tiana and uh, check out this great interview yeah thank you thanks for keeping track okay uh, we've got Tiana Bartoletta on keeping track with us thank you so much for joining us today. We're super excited to have you. We've got Rasheen McGettigan and Molly Huddle, and we are so, one, um, thrilled by the fact that you would even say yes to to coming on and chatting with us, Uh, and two, impressed by your openness of just like your full life. Um, You know, I think a lot of times people see an athlete and they see the dimension that is just the greatness and the championships and all the fantasticness, but I think what really sets you apart and makes you um, even that much more incredible is your willingness to talk about all the other facets of your life that will change um, the world and change a lot of people's ideals of of how they see themselves. Um, and it really gives them a voice that's closer to home and all the things that they go through. You know, I think there's a lot of similarities and you being so open with it and being the champion that that you are is really fantastic. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things I want to start off with is, um, one, could you introduce yourself to our audience, Um, how you'd like to be introduced? I mean, I'm looking at your accolades here. I'd love that to be included. It is just off the chain, but I'd love to hear it from you. You're going to make me give my own resume. Let's do it. (laughs) Tell you. Own it. Own it. Tell us the way. Yes, own it. (laughs) My name is Tiana Bartoleta. (laughs) And I'm a two-time Olympian, three-time Olympic gold medalist, three-time world champion. My events are the 100, the long jump, the 4x1, and I am co-owner of the world record in the 4x1. Woo! Wowzer. Fire. (laughs) I'm trying to think if I could do any of those things. And your bobsled days, too. And your bobsled days, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a bronze medal from a World Cup. Oh, yeah. From a World Cup race. 
No big deal. Minor Olympics, no big much. deal. <laughs> um, uh. So, um, one I want to know about, let's talk about the athlete, Tiana. You know, how did okay. you get your start within the sport? Um, you know, and when did you find yourself becoming the gold medalist 20, 20 year old that you did become? Okay. So I grew up in Elyria, Ohio, very small town, uh, one public high school, literally related to half the people in the town, um, played every sport that was available for females. Uh, I played uh, volleyball in the fall, basketball in the winter, and then track and field was offered in the spring. I didn't start running track until middle school because that's just the way the city was. We knew nothing about age group track or club track or any of those things. So I, I was probably 12 when I was introduced to track and field the first time. The coach was just a history teacher who was picking up an extra check to hang out after <laughs> school with uh, the kids, basically. And on that on that day, the first day of track practice, um, she said, track events over here, field events over here. I raised my hand. I needed clarification that the track events meant running and field events meant not. And she said, correct. And I was like, I'm going to be over here with the field events because I was I not it. interested in running at all. At I love all. it. And so I then chose the long jump after being introduced to what all the field events were. It was basically like, oh, they're saying that looks fun. That's what I'm going to go do. That is my origin story for track and field. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love it. But just seven years later, I'm world champion, right? Which is kind of crazy because I do a lot of workshops with kids right now who are like 15, 16 or whatever. And I'm like, can you imagine that in three years, you're number one in the world? Like, think about where you are right now. Can you imagine that three years from now, you're going to be on top of the world, number one, the best at your event? And they're all like, no. And I'm like, exactly. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't born uh, thinking or even desiring to be a, a champion, it just really speaks to the strength of like doing a little bit every day, putting in some effort mm-hmm. every day and, and not, you don't need to know the whole plan. You don't need to have an entire career trajectory on your vision board. You just, mm-hmm. you just need to know that, oh, there's track practice today. I'm going to go. And then mm-hmm. once you get there, I'm going to warm up and then I'm going to do these drills and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And that's really what my story is about. Later, my I, I've stayed in those three sports, so I didn't even specialize in track and field. I just did everything. It was very active. But later in high school, my junior year, I believe, my dad said, um, "You, my, your mother and I decided that you have to, absolutely have to go away for college. We also decided we were not paying for it. <laughs> so figure it out. <laughs> wow. I love <laughs> it. So, yeah. And so, so, I, so what did you do? Well, I said, wait a minute, as he was trying to leave the room, because I feel like he thought he had a mic drop moment, like, bam, I just, (laughs) I told her it's her responsibility. But I called him back to the room and I said, okay, check this out. If I earn a full scholarship, you and mom have to buy me a car because, you know, just doing the math real quick, you still come out on top. (laughs) And so we shook on it. And that's how, um, that's how I decided to narrow it down to track and field because that was the best of my three sports. So I wasn't even particularly elite in track and field. It was just, I was 
less horrible at that than I was at basketball. Ball handling skills were horrible. And Mm -hmm. volleyball, a little, couldn't really master the overhand serve, a little too short in the net, all this stuff that I knew wouldn't earn me a scholarship. And so once I decided that track and field was my best route, that's when I got more focused and we went to camps and we kind of became more deliberate in um, my progress and more invested in my progress. And then I was able to earn that scholarship. I got my car and Mm -hmm. then I went to University of Tennessee, got my butt kicked freshman year, world champion sophomore year, really can't explain it. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Tiana, when like, so track kind of started as like a way to pay for college, but um, would you say after your gold medal, you started to like get to the point where you loved it because you stayed in the sport about a decade between medals. So like what kept you loving it and what kept you like motivated and believing in yourself for that middle decade there? Cause I think that's an amazing story as an athlete and one that I find inspiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, the truth is I didn't always love it. Um, I wasn't always motivated, but it has almost always been a vehicle for me to transport me from one place to another. So in in high school, it was going to be the vehicle that got me from high school to college. In college, mm. it was the vehicle that took me from broke college student to professional athlete. As a professional athlete, it was like, I'm going to use this sport to get here. I mean, mm. everybody's here is different once you become a professional. For me in those down years, so yeah, there's 10 years between medals. And it wasn't just that there were 10 years between medals. There were seven years where I couldn't get meets. I wasn't making finals. I wasn't earning money, but I was still going to the track. I was still trying to be to get back to that 2005 feeling, like that early success feeling. Uh with no success for seven years. And so what kept me there was that I have always saw track as a way to get to somewhere else. And at that point, because I had been a former world champion and you guys know how this goes, if you have any kind of title, there's going to be some meet in Europe that's going to pay you to show up. Mm. It might not be like diamond league appearance fee numbers, but like, it'll be enough for you to pay rent or buy groceries. And that's pretty much what was happening. And track and field became a way for me to pay tuition because I went back to school for molecular and microbiology, my plan B. And this sounds horrible because whose plan B is medical school? But that's what it was. It was like, uh, <laughs> try, try, okay, cool. Basically, yeah. like, well, something else. Yeah. So, like, that was what was happening. It was like, well, I'm going to just grind and I'm going to, I'm earning enough money to survive and pay tuition and then this will just be like my transition plan and again like I like I opened with me showing up to the track every day that effort isn't wasted yeah sure I was on the uh let's make this tuition money train but the work was still getting done I was still committed and disciplined so no I didn't believe in myself that I could ever get back to that but I did have the discipline to work to make my why happen And that's what I was committed to. So it didn't really matter so much that I didn't love it or that I didn't have a lot of confidence. And that's where my motto comes from. My motto is physics doesn't give a, you know, F word. Mm -hmm. And it's true because there were years when I did not believe anything. Like my confidence was shaken. And all I knew when I got to the line was, guess what? Sir Isaac Newton said force equals mass times acceleration. And nowhere in that equation is Tiana's feelings. 
or Mm -hmm. lack of confidence or Mm -hmm. doubt or any of that. And so that really just kept me going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's about just showing up. And I think that's so hard for, um, that's a a lesson that isn't glamorous. And I feel like it's an important one, especially in track where sometimes it just takes time to get Mm -hmm. better and to fix things. And so you should, I think your career shows that really well. And I'm yeah, I'm, you have. I'm sorry, go ahead, Lucy. No, go ahead, Ralph. No, I was just saying, I'm curious. Yeah, like, you know, you became world champion at 20, a sophomore in college and had success the year after. Um, And then was there a little bit of a, was there a fall off after that? And or could you talk uh, like what it was like to compete as a world champion? Did you feel like it became a pressure or like some a weight on your shoulders? And did that contribute to, you know, your decline in performance? Wondering, okay. you know, what was the kind of psychology around being a world champion and like the aftermath of making it? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like everyone wants to make it. Absolutely. And you were like yeah. living this, you had a lot of life to live after that. Um, yeah. So what was that like being world champion and trying to compete? So you call it a fall off, which I am grateful for that. Oh, <laughs> I, I, but it was definitely a cliff dive like there was no there, there was no gradual like oh Tiana looks like she's in trouble it's like where's Tiana what happened and it was seven years long um the issue was I was not prepared for winning like you can go to a meet you can do the work. You can know that you're prepared to win the competition. But I was absolutely not prepared for what that would mean or the the implications of a victory such as that, right? And my coach honestly didn't think I was going to win. I, I tell a story to young athletes all the time about uh, being in the hotel room with my roommate, Didi Trotter, with my coach there, kind of just brushing her hair because everybody was all anxious. And it was a very relaxing moment. And She's brushing her hair and she's saying, you know, Didi, when you win, your whole life's going to change. And I'm reading a book and I look up and I'm like, yeah, what about if I win? And my coach is like, well, you won't, but just go take out as many chicks as you can. Like that was like the, and you know, I kind of was on my little twin European bed. You know what I'm talking about? Pissed. Like, really? (laughs) That's what you're going to tell me the night before. But so that just tells you the mindset. We kind of are just there for the experience and nobody really was prepared for what would happen when sophomore Tiana, who was still a teenager, walked out of there with the gold medal and none of us transitioned well. We dropped the ball completely, myself included, because I made the mistake of thinking I had made it, thinking that all the work that I had done to that point was sufficient and that was why I got that that result. And so... There was a little bit of that post-victory kind of what now, that depression. And also this really arrogant that I think we can credit me being a teenager for, but this this idea that like I want gold and I know what I eat in my dorm room. Like I know the life I'm living in and I am number one in the world right now. So it kind of set me up for maybe I don't have to be as committed as it seems like some of these people have to be, or maybe I don't have to do uh, all the things that I was doing before. It was just a really stupid uh, interpretation of the victory, but yeah, it contributed to that down, that downfall for sure. Yeah. The, the joys of being young when, you know, you can eat donuts for breakfast <laughs> or like right before a race. I remember those days or like I'd eat like a box of pizza and be like, this is my pre-race meal. <laughs> a whole box yep. of it. Um, yep. 
that's so, I, I guess, like after hearing that part of your story, like what would be your advice to young athletes that see success very early? Because I do think some things that really um, stick out to me and I really appreciate is the importance of not specializing too early. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that that's something to kind of touch on. Just talk to like young athletes that think like, you know, they have to have it all perfect to like line up how they approach um, college athletics or sports. And then, you know, that's the path to success afterwards. What would be your advice? The best the best advice I ever got on the subject about beginner's luck basically came from the novel parable of the alchemist. Um, because in that, in that story, the guy's on a journey for his personal legend and like he gets confirmation from the universe right away for an athlete. That's like, you come out of the gate and you're winning stuff and you're like, yeah, this is like, I'm going to win forever. Mm-hmm. But in that, in that parable, it, almost was explained as like that happens to you in order to kind of spark that fire to encourage you to keep going it's not it's not meant for you to then look at your life like this is the blueprint because no matter what the next you can't get to the next level with anything you currently are in possession of right now otherwise Mm. you'd be on that level right and so I didn't understand and young athletes need to understand that cool, what you've done to this point got you here, but to get to the next place is going to require something different, something more. Almost like in Chronicles of Narnia, you can't keep going through the wardrobe. There's a bunch of different ways to get, (laughs) you you can't, it doesn't always happen the same way twice. It rarely, it Mm -hmm. rarely does. You keep having to level up, yeah. Exactly. You have to level it up every single time. Amazing. I love that. And I, I saw so, a qu- quote of yours that you said that um, even though everything had just changed and nothing had really changed, and then you said um, something that you had changed. So it was more like because you became world champion, you're like, wow, I've arrived here. But what we know with sport, right, there's the uh, once the race or competition's over, there's always the next one. Um, mm-hmm. And you feel like yeah. you were kind of haunted by that. Oh, I, I was successful there and now I have to you know, how do I replicate that and just keep kind of yeah. getting, getting stuck nearly back there um, instead mm-hmm. of being like, you know, like you said, like ready for the next level, keep evolving, keep becoming again, not just arriving at something. Right. I was like chasing a ghost. Yeah. Like, it was like chasing something that I would actually never be able to experience again. One, because I'm not even that same person. So it was like it was mm. already a doomed endeavor from the beginning. But I remember being at World Indoor um, in Moscow the following winter so not even months later on the runway maybe in like fifth place and uh, with one jump to go and no lie was crying sobbing on the runway because I was like I was so embarrassed that I was the reigning world champion and I was gonna leave there with no medal like I that was what I was thinking on the runway and it mm. wasn't it wasn't hey, just get out here and execute. Like, just try to initiate the approach better. Try to drive mm. the knee better. I didn't. I wasn't thinking any of those things. I was thinking, these people are going to think I'm a fluke because I can't back up that performance from several months ago. Mm. And that is like, it exposes the mindset I had. And then every mm-hmm. meet after that, it was just like, you know, you're announced as the world champion. And it was almost, it was 
almost a weight. It was just like, mm-hmm. dang, they're setting me up. Now people are going to expect all of these things. And I just got heavier and heavier, both physically, honestly, and mentally and emotionally, because mm-hmm. I felt like I was chasing something I would never get back again. And mm. I just, it was, the burden was too heavy for me to carry. So you, do you feel like you place your identity around this world champion and like you, you couldn't be anything else besides world champion to everybody else. And if you were, you were less than, and you weren't worthy. Am I getting that right? Right. Cause like, who was I before? Who was saying my name before that mm-hmm. moment? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't that I was some age group star that was like on diestat.com being tracked, you know, my progression. It was like, I got my scholarship to college and boom, world champion. Now people mm-hmm. know my name. They only know me as that. They don't see the journey. And I think that's why mm-hmm. it's important for me right now to show you the whole thing. That way, when we get to the Olympic trials and someone says my name, there's no way they can put me in that box. There's mm-hmm. no way. There's way mm-hmm. too much out there to say, yeah, she's out here trying to defend her title, but let me tell you what this mm-hmm. girl has gone through or what she did last mm-hmm. week, or did you hear what she said? You know, all of this stuff. Whereas before, at 19 years old, I was just that. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. it. Defined you at that time, and now it doesn't mm-hmm. anymore. You've, yeah. given, Kiana, you've, you've had an opportunity to, like, tell people your story and let mm-hmm. them know a f- whole Tiana, which I think is very, very powerful. Um, and again, like I said, why I love following you is it, it allows for people to see an example of how they can recontrol or take back their narrative um, and still pursue successes in, you know, areas in which people expect, you know, mm-hmm. great things mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. Tiana, I love your blog. Um, We'll give a shout out, tianab.com. And like B-E, like a... Yes. (laughs) So I know you're a great writer. I've read some of your stuff before, but um, that reminds me of what we were just talking about. One of the quotes in your blog is about how um, you called it an existential crisis in your life as a professional athlete, which I identified with a lot because it was about your career as an athlete making you basically a bunch of results to so many people. but as a person, like you have to be a whole person to live your life in a harmonious way and not Mm -hmm. just have a breakdown. So you said, the end of your quote, I'll just read. My career requires an insatiable appetite for victory, a perpetual discontent. My spirit is good with what it is. So how do I balance the two? Good question. I think if you're in sports long enough, or even if you're an ambitious person, you will have that question come up Mm -hmm. because it's like, how do I want more but be enough at the same time? Um, So I think if you can kind of talk about that a little bit, how you came to that, how you even realized that was something going on in your life. Yeah. My coaches used to always say, God, we wish you were stupid, (laughs) which is horrible. No, Tiana, we say, I think that all the time. Like, honestly, (laughs) I think you're a better athlete if you just forget what you just did, whether it was good or bad, and just show up to every starting line, like left, right, left, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they're like, your brain, you're just like, you're doing way too much. You're thinking way too much about this, but that's who I am. So they have to deal with it. I have to deal with it. We work with what we have, right? I'm a brainy athlete. Anyway, um, it was killing me. My mental health was in the tank. I mean, Mm -hmm. just the whole idea that you're nothing more than the results you produce, as if me going to the track every day is not worth something. Mm -hmm. And I was completely oblivious and blind to all of that effort and all of uh, the things that doing that kind of 
being committed to that kind of training, eating that way, that says so much about your character as a person that we completely ignore if it doesn't manifest in a medal at the end of the season. And like, that's really a messed up place to be in. And I began to search for like, how do I survive this? Because I wasn't coping well. I mean, at all. I was having the suicidal thoughts. I was cutting all of this stuff, like mm. trying to manage all of all of these feelings. Like we, none of us get on the line and know if we're going to walk out with a medal. We don't know. And yet we know for a fact what happens to our salaries if we don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And Very it's risky. just like, Yeah, it's really, really scary. And I was like, I have to manage this. So I became a seeker and yoga was one of those ways for me. But I'm I'm actually so I, I, when I'm asked or like painted into a corner where somebody asks me what my religion is, I typically say, I'm a practicing Buddhist. I'm a yogi that practices Buddhism, right? So in Buddhism, uh, one of the major things is like, there is suffering. Um, but there is a path out of suffering and it's basically like non-attachment. Like you can get out there and you can do your work and you can do all this stuff, but you can't have any attachments to the outcome. And the same is true in yoga. It's like you are only entitled to the labor. You are not entitled to the fruits of your labor. And once I really began to embrace that, I got a lot healthier about just being okay with what happens at the end because we're not going to know, nor are we in control of any of that anyway. But all I can do is all I can do. All I can do is show up to the track. All I can do are these little things and prepare. Uh, So the existential crisis kind of disappeared that way because we talk about the Olympic trials and I know it's not sexy when I answer this question that way, but they're like, are you going to the Olympics? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I tell I you. Know. Yeah. It's a, I'm it's American. a, I got to go survive the damn hunger games in June. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, so love true. I love it. It's so true. Um, I want to just reverse a little bit because it's something that you said is very um, on topic. If I can say that about what's happening right now, on the sport. I don't know if you heard about Mary Kane's story mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what she faced when she was with the NOP, um, sponsored by Nike. Um, one of the things that she talked about, which reminded me of just you, what you talked about, reminded me of what she also said was just about how, um, she just saw herself as a failure and, you know, all the things that she was listening to from outside voices that were making her feel like she would never, um, be an athlete that she hoped that she could be. Um, she started cutting herself and like getting a little bit into that psyche of what brings you there. But then also another thing that you've talked about in your blogs, you've talked about very openly, we've been roommates before and we, we've shared a lot of stuff. And I did ask if it was okay to talk about this. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's uh, one thing I also want to mention is to any of our listeners. Um, I think, um, there are resources and if you have any resources about cutting yourself and about emotional abuse, I think that'd be also really helpful to share um, because this next topic is, can be triggering. We can include um, this. We can include them in the notes as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, she talked about her, she, she had an, an emotional abuse situation that also was an insider that was telling her all of these things um, that was keeping her from yeah. her success and keeping her from being able to be whole and identify with, you know, the joy that comes with um, performance. And is that something that you can talk to? I can um, from a couple different sides, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, as a sprinter jumper who is short, I'm probably one of the shortest 
uh, weight is very, very important for me. And I have been in the seven year downfall that I had. Part of my issue was that I was like too heavy for my event. The, the good thing is like nobody was in my face. <laughs> talking about that the bad thing is nobody was on my face talking about that so I really didn't know until I got with a, a new coach uh, I was never pressured by my coaches to uh, lose weight or talk to that way but I was at home if you know what I mean mm-hmm. and um, I've had to like it's gone so far as to me to stand naked in the kitchen and get pinched in different areas um, or stand for naked photo shoots as he compared like what my body looked like when I won this medal versus where I was uh, in uh, in November. Like, and we all know that that's not even how the body works, especially in training. So I've been there. I've, I've definitely experienced that feeling of I'm too big. I'm too fat. I'm not going to be able to be successful until I, uh, hit that number or that scale says that number. And I, I remember how looking at food, the relationship with food was at the time. And it's, it's, it's not enjoyable. And yet all of our culture uh, revolves around like, you know, even just enjoying friends around food and drink and how like that's ripped away from you. If you're worried about your weight every single second, Mm -hmm. once I got out of that situation though, I began to look, I began to, uh, pursue the data for my own body, for my optimal weight. Right. So Mm -hmm. I have approached it from a much different, much more healthy position and, because of this issue, especially in the NCAA, especially with Mary and, and probably with a lot more female athletes talking, coming out and talking about this, I created a talk called Performance Fuel, which is actually a talk about um, how, to, how to manage your weight and your fuel plan and how to eat and not, not make it uh, this all-encompassing thing that you have to deal with. Because we can't ignore the fact that it's, it's, it's important. And I think uh, that was mentioned in a few of the articles. Like we all know that weight's important, but how you talk about weight is more important. Mm-hmm. And so it's really ridiculous that as scientists, as they purport to be in the NOP, it didn't occur to them to approach it more scientifically, less personally, less abusive, less emotional than than they did. Like, how is it that I can go into a classroom and explain to a, a kid how mass is calculated in the equation for force and without anybody crying, without anybody feeling like a piece of shit, but understanding how important it is, you know, to have lean muscle and to not want to carry extra weight around the track for your own health. How Mm -hmm. is it that I can do that with no certifications and you can't do that? Mm -hmm. You can't do that when you are trusted by so many people. And the thing that pisses me off the most about all of this is how it seems coaches, especially quote unquote, celebrity coaches or like the guru coaches that travel and do uh, these talks and stuff are so reckless with the responsibility we give them. Like, do you understand the responsibility I'm giving you when I come to you? These, this could be my life dream. It could be my only way out of poverty. It could be my escape from a horrible situation at home like it was for me. Like, I need you to be on my team when I come to the track because you don't know what it is I'm actually trusting you with. It's not just to go out there and win an effing meet. 
it's way more than that all the time. And these coaches, whether it's because they're sleeping with athletes or doing all of this other stuff have become so reckless Mm -hmm. because this idea that it's just the winning that matters has been, has proliferated our sport. And as you can probably hear, it makes me angry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So angry that we've that it's gotten here. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. And even in your home, you know, you talked about in your home and there was, uh, someone in your home that was telling you all of these things about your body that did not help um, how you are already feeling about your body. Um, but then you also did stay And Did you feel, you know, Mary Kane talks about um, how she was looking to get back into um, the NOP because she felt like she didn't have any closure and she felt like she wanted this apology and she felt like um, she also wanted that approval because she had this approval from this person. So it was that play on her emotions did you feel anything like that? Oh, yeah, because uh, I characterize that relationship as toxic and as abusive. And the cycles are similar. It doesn't matter uh, what the dynamic is. The cycle of abuse is is pretty textbook in each case. And what I was feeling, uh, he, he successfully made me feel like I couldn't be successful outside of that relationship or that dynamic and how we were doing it exactly how we were doing it on the flip side uh as an athlete it's your name on that contract right it's you on that starting line and it's your name next to those results and there's a large part of you that feels like nobody cares uh what's happening outside of that result sheet as long as your name is near the top of that result sheet so you end up weighing, as I did, like how much of this can I take in order to stay successful so that I can not, uh, so that I can please these people over here? How much can I take? And I'll be honest with you, ladies, I did end up leaving in in May of 2017, but uh, I also probably could have rationalized staying too. And I want a lot of people to understand yeah, it feels shameful to be able to rationalize that kind of situation, but it's so nuanced and so complicated. And you're just not sure if it's worth the risk of going out there and like taking a chance on yourself when it's like the devil, you know, it's a familiar situation. And you're wondering if it's, if it's worth it for this short period of time. Cause we all know this career doesn't last forever and the money is mm-hmm. not going to last forever. Hell, you let the leave it up to the IAAF. You might not have an event next season, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. So all of those things, all of those things get calculated. You wonder, you think maybe you can take it just a little bit more. Maybe I can last one more year. Maybe I can wait until after the Olympics. These are calculations that are made all the time. What would you say kind of like snapped you out of it or made you um, make that decision in the end to leave? If it was any one thing? It was like a bunch of little things, but I had a final straw moment where um, after the Rio Olympics, I had asked to go on vacation (laughs) because I was like mentally destroyed and physically taxed. I mean, that probably was my most taxing Olympic Games. And I was just wasted. I asked to go to Hawaii because I obviously I've been in Europe all year long and never been to Hawaii and and thought that would be awesome. And he told me that I hadn't earned enough. Like I didn't do 
well enough for a vacation like that. And I remember, because my, my gold medals were nearby at this point, and it's like they caught the light and they were like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> like, if, if that's not enough, like you are never going to be able to be enough or do enough. Like if coming home with two gold medals isn't enough for this person, to value you and your time and how you feel and your mental health girl nothing will yeah especially especially when you retire Mm -hmm. and uh, at that point two things happened one I felt this extreme hopelessness I also felt freed because I didn't have to try anymore and I knew that the next thing was to just find a way to leave safely Mm mm-hmm yeah. And just for clarification, are you talking about a coaching situation or? No, no. Okay. no. I'm talking about someone who involved themselves in my career, like okay. so much so that people thought he was a coach, but he wasn't. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like on a point you made earlier, like how, you know, the sport has become you know, proliferated to the point that it's like all about the result um, and where you've kind of pulled back into this kind of Buddhist yoga philosophy of like putting in the work and not, you know, focusing on the fruit of the work. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of making that point, um, you know, actually by doing that, then that actually frees you up then to actually perform better anyway. So there's kind of an yeah. irony with that philosophy that actually that can actually help you to perform better. And have you feel have you felt that that is how you got back is that part of your you know return to the to your level to the world class level uh that's a huge resounding no (laughs) (laughs) I want to so I want to be fully honest about this complicated journey of mine um so in 2012 I got my another goal with the relay team and then 13 I was injured 14 I returned to the long jump and 15, I got long jump gold and world champs. And then 16, long jump and four by one gold. That stretch of time uh, was not done healthy mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. That stretch of time was done under extreme duress and manipulation and just a lot of emotional and mental abuse. The, the thing that I find a little bit ironic in the worst of ways is that I became healthy and my performances have not yet bounced back Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. mentally mentally I'm exactly where I would have always wanted to be but Mm -hmm. my performances have just kind of nothing has happened but it has forced me to take care of me as a human and I kind of giggle at the universe for this because obviously I part of me thought that leaving would be like instant success cure because now I'm no longer in danger. Now I'm no longer stressed out all the time. And that didn't happen. And just like my identity was uh, as world champion, when I started out younger, it had become that as an adult. And this really has forced me to sever that tie between Mm -hmm. Tiana, who Tiana, who gets the medals and Tiana, the person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why I've recommitted to this Olympic journey, because one, uh, making an Olympic team is hard. And sometimes you're not sure you want to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're not Mm -hmm. sure if you want to, if you are ready or willing to to do that work and I've done it twice already so I'm very familiar with what it's going to take and what it's going to cost and I think the reason that I doubled down even with all the battles that I I still may be fighting is because I believe and want to prove to myself that I can do it healthy like you 
there you don't have to have this win at all cost mm-hmm. um, mentality. You can show up to the line as your highest self, as your best self, and still be fierce and still kick ass. And only this time I'll have the added layer of, and if it doesn't work out, I will be just fine. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. Yeah. is exciting. Yeah. That's it's exciting. That's great. I have a couple of questions um, just really quick. I, I wanted to know, like, did you have any resources that you could share with us on, on how anything that helped you um, with your emotional um, abuse situation that you were in or any advice that you could share with any, anybody that might be going through something similar? Yeah, um, actually, uh, I think Molly asked this question about if there was any one thing. Um, mm. I can't remember who asked it, but um, I came, I flew to New York for an indoor track meet and at the armory. And you know how like we we pass the time like in office, like cubicles and stuff mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like a really strange setup uh, on the wall in the cubicle where I was passing the time before starting my warm up was a poster that said nine signs you're in an emotionally abusive relationship. Swear to God, like before my race. And I'm sitting there for 45 minutes and I'm just staring at this poster. And I realized that we checked every single item on this list. I then later, um, after I left, posted a blog about that moment and then posted mm. the posted the the PDF. And I will I can send that to you because Please. that was that was kind of the thing to see it, to see it in a list like without emotion just like Mm -hmm. if this is happening if this is happening if this is happening and it wasn't just like there was one thing or like one day we were guilty Mm -hmm. of this but Mm -hmm. everything was fine it was like we were guilty of all nine things on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and I think it's helpful to just know what that looks like or in or in how many ways it can look because Mm -hmm. you don't always I mean, I don't even bruise. So it's not like a lot of people are like, oh, but you don't look hurt. Like, that's mm-hmm. not that's not a complete picture mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what is happening. Seeing isn't believing. Right. And, yeah. And, yeah. So that's one thing I definitely will share, but I'll send to you. Yeah. Thank you and so you much. And we'll share that. Yeah. And you also mentioned a talk you give on um, performance and fueling. Would, would you, do you have a link to that? Is there something we could... Um, you know, post on that for you as well. Sure. Is that something? I'm, I'm working on finding a way to make that available in our online form, but oh, wow. this is right now it's like they book me and I come talk oh, to them. Oh, awesome. About it. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can post details on that then. You can do okay. that. Yeah, great. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to better help tell stories of women athletes. A lot of our stories are untold, and you have already done so much. Um, to tell us like a full picture and tell us a full story, but is there any, any part of your story that is untold that you'd like to tell our listeners and, you know, to kind of put out there in the world? Untold? No, but I just want to encourage everyone to just keep going. Just, just put one foot in front of the other. Life is hard. It's messy. And people like to look at athletes as if it's not as if they're one dimensional and I just want to give athletes permission to just be the whole mess Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we are sometimes and and to take all of that with you to the track and like I I tell myself like work work those demons out there on the oval Mm -hmm. but you don't have to you don't have to hide anything you can be you and you don't have to win every time and odds are you'll lose 
way more than you win. And I tell people all the time, nobody cares that I lost every single competition in 16, didn't make a Diamond League final in 16 because I won one meet and that was the Olympics. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And if it's a bad time right now, it's temporary. And if it's a good time right now, it's temporary. So keep moving. (laughs) Mm, Wow. That's so great. much knowledge dropped. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome, um, ladies. We really appreciate having you on Keeping Track. And, um, you know, we, we can follow your journey in so many ways. Can you let us know where we can follow you? Yes, uh, on my website at tianab.com, which is B-E-E, like a bumblebee, mm-hmm. or on Instagram, which is tiana.bartoletta, or Twitter, which is T-I Bartoletta, and Facebook, which is also Tiana B. Awesome. And on All your website, places. yeah, on your website, you have like meditations, you've got books to download, you've got blogs, you've got awesome resources there. So it's a really amazing website. Well done. Thank you. Thank you oh, very much. Great work. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, ladies. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Keep Major shout outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.